2: That's shopify.com slash offer.
1: This is part two of our podcast on cheating and the Tour de France. If you haven't listened to part one, you should go back and do that. Or don't. I'm not your mother. Last episode, you heard about the mockumentary Tour de Pharmacy, about a fictional 1982 Tour de France where everything that can go wrong does. One of the main characters is Italian cyclist Juju Pepe, Played by Orlando Bloom. Pepe dies of heart failure in the opening scene on a long climb. Though no one notices he's dead until he races downhill off a cliff on his bike. Afterwards, a doping official, played by Nathan Fielder, makes a list of all the drugs found in Pepe's system. It is a very, very long list. In the autopsy, they found out Juju was on EPO and cocaine. Also some insulin and anabolic steroids, oxabalone and nandone. That's all played for laughs, but no one made anything up here. Even found some Pepe system. is clearly modeled on Italian it's rider like and 1998 like winner like Marco Pantani, a, Pantani a flamboyant like rider like nicknamed Il Parata, or The Pirate. Who did win a tour, only to later admit doping with a fearsome array of legal and illegal supplements. Juju Pepe's farcical death on the slopes of the tour... And the stress and amateur chemistry behind it is also ripped straight from the history of the tour, and not even the recent tour. From the start, the Tour de France pushed riders to extreme measures in order to compete, from taking rat poison to dull the pain of the race to instances of outright flagrant cheating. The race only became more popular and more competitive with time, and by 1967, the lengths riders would go to included a powerful new class of drugs, amphetamines the pressures of the tour became so intense that many feared they would take a rider's life. And when they eventually did, the sport's reaction to the increasing dangers of cycling defied belief. From SB Nation and the Vox Media Podcast Network, I'm Spencer Hall, and this is It Seems Smart, a podcast about those who push, bend, and sometimes break the rules of sports. And what happens afterwards. The first story today Tom Simpson and the limits of speed. Tom Simpson was a British rider who in 1967 had never won the Tour de France. Chris Fontecchio of SB Nation's Podium Cafe says Simpson was one of those riders who enjoyed success in cycling
0: elsewhere. He had finished sixth in the Tour de France in 1962, um, but he was a rider whose notoriety went way beyond the kind of also-ran-at-the-tour position because, first of all, he was British and there were very few British riders in prominent positions in cycling at that time, and... Of course, Britain's a big country with lots of people who would be interested in watching, and he had won the uh, World Championship road race in 1965. So, which is a, you know, really exalted accomplishment for any cyclist.
1: The Tour was not Simpson's first priority, but he wasn't doing it on a lark either, and no one took him lightly. He'd worn the leader's yellow jersey for a stage of the Tour in 1962. But otherwise, Simpson found glory elsewhere in shorter races like the Tour de Flanders and the road race from Milan to San Remo in Italy, for example. He'd been a champion most other places a cyclist would want to win, just not the Tour.
0: He was definitely taken seriously, and throughout the 67 Tour, he was attempting to ride with the best climbers.
1: Leading up to the 1967 Tour, Simpson had more than a few different pressures building up around him. Cycling historian Peter Cossens says one of those was financial pressure.
2: He'd just taken on a mortgage on a, on a house in, uh, in Ghent where he lived. And he needed money. He needed money to kind of sustain his lifestyle. And in order to do that, he needed to finish well up in the, in the Tour de France.
1: For a rider approaching the age of 30, the need to make as much money in cycling before impending retirement was pressing. And so was the pressure of being a champion-grade rider who never really impressed at the Tour and being the only real contender from Great Britain. It's Fontecchio again.
0: So I would think that between him being a rider of that magnitude, having an entire nation of cycling fans more or less united behind him, as opposed to France, where any the the, the great cycling fans of France had all sorts of different riders that they would be interested in, uh, and you know nearing the end of his career at a time when people didn't make a lot of money in cycling was probably all adding to the pressure of the Tour de France.
1: Simpson didn't have a backup plan. Like many cyclists, Simpson was working class. He came from coal mining country in England. Cycling had to work for Simpson, or he'd be back delivering groceries with two kids and a new mortgage to pay. In short, Simpson was under serious strain from the start going into the 1967 tour. So, like a lot of other riders on the tour, he took amphetamines to compete. Amphetamines, prescription-strength stimulants, became popular with riders after World War II. According to Peter Cossens, a lot of those drugs were army surplus.
2: Armies on all sides made massive, massive do- uh, numbers of, of amphetamines for soldiers so that so they could fight um, for, for kind of over, over long periods.
1: Riders took the same pills that fueled soldiers during wartime and put them to work on the roads. It wasn't the safest bet, but remember, some riders were already stacking up a horrifying array of drugs in their systems just to get through the tour
2: already. So, I mean, it was things like uh, arsenic, cyanide, nitroglycerin. I mean, these are obviously pretty frightening substances to be playing around with. And, and riders did kind of fall foul of it in, in quite serious ways. I mean, including death, unfortunately, in some cases. But if you took it in quite a small dose, I guess uh, Maybe taking something like arsenic was was seen as, as a way of, of deadening pain, of deadening muscle pain, or, or, I don't know, aching joints, whatever it might be.
1: Compared to old standbys like rat poison, nitroglycerin, and cocaine, prescription amphetamines made in a lab probably seemed almost like a safe choice. They weren't when paired with everything else, though, which riders tended to do when the tour became desperate enough. There was no testing at that point for riders. No data to confirm which riders were taking amphetamines during races. Fontecchio says we have to rely on other evidence, the riders openly admitting it was happening.
0: What we have is anecdotal evidence about uh, amphetamine use across the peloton, but you have people like uh, Jacques Anquetil stating openly that he thinks two-thirds of the riders are taking uh, amphetamines. Um, you had Fausto Coppi, one of the most famous riders in all of history and the winner of the Tour de France in 1949 and 1952 saying that uh, riders who deny amphetamine use are not worth talking to about the subject.
1: Translated, everyone was doing it in the attempt to remain competitive in the especially desperate environment of the Tour de France. And on Mont Ventoux, one of the tour's most desperate stages, the 1967 Tour de France would become a matter of life or death for Tom Simpson. Simpson's plan at the 1967 Tour was extremely specific. He wanted to compete for a win in two or three crucial stages and finish high enough in the overall standings to consider it a success. One of those stages he targeted was Mont Ventoux, not the biggest mountain stage in the Tour, but still a grueling ride once described by Australian rider Russell Mockridge as, quote, A giant, smoldering, 6,000-foot-high slag heap, Fontecchio says Mont Ventoux is singular among the mountain stages of the tour.
0: Mont Ventoux is unique from climbs in the Tour de France in that it is just a steady gradient that goes on for a long, long time. Um, A lot of the notable climbs in the Tour de France will be broken up a little bit or they won't go on for quite as long.
1: The upper part of the climb is treeless and offers no shade from the blistering summer sun. The wind blows right in riders' faces the whole time. The heat can be merciless despite the altitude. Ventoux is a steady, mean kind of torture. The stage had already almost killed one rider, Jean Maijac, who in 1955 collapsed on the mountain 10 kilometers from the summit.
0: Maizac was the first first one because it's that we look back on with real interest because it's so similar to what happened to um, Simpson. This happened on a day that was so hot support
1: cars overheated and had to be left by the road down the mountain. My Jacques' heart had to be restarted with an injection of stimulants, but he survived and he was in good enough shape to fight the paramedics so forcefully he had to be strapped to his gurney for transport to a nearby hospital. There were other incidents on other stages involving riders coming dangerously close to real harm though. Despite the tour becoming more intense, riders didn't back off using amphetamines. Or anything else, for that matter. After all, no one on the tour had paid a serious price for using performance-enhancing drugs as yet. Here's Fontecchio.
0: But you also have Roger Riviere in the 1960 Tour de France... uh... Falling into a ravine and breaking his back, and having it described later on that he had had so many amphetamines in his system that he couldn't operate his brakes. There
1: was some general growing understanding of the danger of amphetamine use by athletes. But as for the Tour de France and the riders in the Peloton?
0: There were some tests uh, begun in 1966 for amphetamines, but you know, clearly by 1967, still not all that much was happening.
1: Simpson got off to a solid start in the first week of the tour, hanging around at six overall. He got sick in week two, however, falling to seventh and spending much of his recovery time suffering from diarrhea and unable to eat.
0: Going into the last day of his life, Simpson had been falling behind at the Tour de France and had not been, uh, you know, was kind of struggling to hang on and complaining of illness. Simpson was in
1: such bad shape going into the 13th stage of the tour that friends and his team manager from Peugeot urged him to quit. Simpson ignored them, and he rolled out the next day for that 13th stage, the one he'd marked as a crucial point on his tour, Mont Ventoux. Simpson rolled to the start line. In the 2010 BBC documentary Death in the Mountain, the story of Tom Simpson, French journalist and friend of Simpson's Jean Boubet says Simpson turned to him before the race and stuck out his tongue. Bobay said Simpson had five tablets sitting on it, pills Bobay believes were tonidron, also known as methamphetamine hydrochloride. He felt bad, weak, and had already struggled with illness. He targeted Vontu as a critical stage for him, but Simpson had neither the individual strength nor a strong team around him to make it happen.
0: But... But even when a rider of that stature falls behind in the overall competition, he's still looking for these kind of um, symbolic victories.
1: The stage began. Riding in a chase group behind the leaders, Simpson struggled.
0: And so as Simpson is climbing and is, you know, basically hanging in there but starting to look a little glassy-eyed.
1: A race official said he saw Simpson putting brandy into his water bottle, a not uncommon move for riders who'd been drinking while riding on the tour for decades at that point. A combination of the heat, the brandy, his sickness, fatigue, and the amphetamines began to break Simpson's body and mind down completely.
0: The story goes that his uh, team support car behind him was starting to worry about the descent off of Mont Ventoux, that he was looking so unsteady that they were starting to fear for his life. At a spot about
1: a kilometer from the summit, Tom Simpson gets into real trouble.
0: He falls over. So then he gets back up on his bike. Um, he's still kind of wobbling. You have uh, fans along the roadside giving him a push. We have the fairly famous video that probably most of the people hearing this are familiar with, um, where you can see him by himself and looking terrible. He was helped back to his bike, only to collapse for the last time about
1: 500 yards up the road. Medics caught up to Simpson and administered oxygen and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. But it was too late. The French medical inquest determined that Simpson died as a result of heart failure by way of heat exhaustion, with the methamphetamine in a system clouding his judgment and making it unclear to Simpson where his physical limits were. He was 29 years old. In response to Simpson's death, the Tour de France instituted testing for amphetamines and other stimulants for the 1968 Tour. They even started the race the next year at Vitel, a town famous for its mineral springs, and dubbed the whole thing the Tour of Good Health as a push against the negative publicity from Simpson's death, which happened live on French TV. And in the wake of an actual televised death, the response of the sport would naturally be to follow the lead, clean up, and 30 years later, be a safer event, right? Right? It's probably time to fast forward 30 years and see how that went. Our second story, the Festina scandal. Say it with me. Erythropoietin. It's fun to say, but kind of bulky, so let's shorthand it for easy use. EPO. Or EPO, if you like nicknames. Fontecchio says, EPO was something of interest for cyclists from the start.
0: This is a this was a great breakthrough in the 1980s when it was first created. Um, for people who suffer from the effects of cancer or from cancer treatments like chemo and radiation or kidney disease, uh, irritable bowel system, all sorts of things that lead people to suffer from anemia. That became very interesting to endurance athletes and particularly cyclists.
1: Without getting too far into the scientific weeds here, EPO is this, a chemical produced by the body signaling for more red blood cell production from bone marrow the more red blood cells someone has, the more oxygen they're going to have in their blood. And the more aerobic work they're going to be able to do. And the minute someone figured out how to make EPO in a lab, well, then it was only a matter of time before it ended up in some athlete's body, especially an athlete who needed superhuman aerobic endurance over a long span of time. Fontecchio again.
0: Essentially, they... Cyclists are just able to reproduce more oxygen and just uh, extend their efforts, those extreme efforts that they need, but also extend the endurance of their more baseline efforts in a race, um, and you know recover better the next day as well.
1: APO could increase the amount of red blood cells in a rider's blood. If testing was a concern, the rider's blood or blood compatible with the rider's blood type could be put back in the rider between stages via transfusion or before races, or whenever the riders could get it. In short, competitors on the Tour de France had figured out a way to ride strong and recover faster throughout the entire grueling race. There's no documented moment when one rider starts blood doping. But once it happens, it happens fast and all over the place.
0: We start to see EPO in the peloton really almost overnight in 1992. You know, you have... um, It starts to come up in 1991, but there are a lot of people like Greg LeMond, uh, who will tell you, and other uh, Edwig van Hooydonk, who had won the Tour of Flanders and was a young classic star at that time, who will just say, by 1992, the speed of the peloton had changed. And so from that sort of observational evidence, that's when EPO had fully arrived and become widespread.
1: In the EPO era, average stage times decreased and speeds noticeably increased. There's actually a steep little slope climbing upwards on any graph of overall speeds on the tour, and it spikes from 1990 to 2000 or so, and declined steeply after that, around when anti-doping rules and some testing was implemented at the tour. The individual case most know at the peak of the EPO era is undoubtedly Lance Armstrong. Armstrong had seven tour titles stripped from him after he confessed to using EPO and doping throughout his career at the tour. But the team with the most dramatic case? It has to be Team Festina at the 1998 tour. Lance Armstrong never got caught at the border with an entire private pharmacy. He never had the police raid his hotel in the middle of the night, and he never got his entire team booted from the race, setting off a chain of events that nearly canceled the entire Tour de France. Lance Armstrong retroactively scandalized the Tour de France, but Festina? Team Festina did that live. In real time, as the whole cycling world watched. Peter Cossens says it started with a border stop.
2: Willie Vogt was uh, he was stopped on the, on the frontier between, uh, between Belgium and France.
1: Vogt was a soigneur, a helper for a team of cyclists. The team in this case, Team Festina, sponsored by a Spanish watchmaker and based in France. Festina had an impressive stable of riders, including former world champion Laurent Brochard and Richard Varant, a vicious climber in the mountains and a local fan favorite. Willie Vogt was making a delivery for Team Festina. No one is sure who, but someone who knew what Vogt was moving didn't want it to arrive.
2: Somebody had tipped off the police that he was going to be carrying something that he shouldn't have. Anyway, they they stopped Willie Vogt's car and uh, had a look in the boot, and there was just a kind of almost a complete armory of, of doping products in there.
1: When vote was stopped in July 8, 1998, three days before the start of the 1998 tour, customs officials searched his car and found a whole lot of help inside. Vote wasn't just found with the usual suspects, amphetamines, narcotics, and steroids. All standard issue on the ban list since the reforms of the late 1960s and 70s. Vogt also had a shocking amount of things not banned by the tour. Substances that, while not banned outright, certainly pointed towards cheating by other means entirely. Vote's car carried a substantial amount of EPO and masking agents. Rumors of blood doping had been persistent throughout the decade, but now a team courier had been caught red-handed, supplying a big-name team with drugs during an actual running of the tour. Worst of all, Some of the bottles were labeled with individual riders' names. Not a code name or a number that corresponded to the rider. Nope. The name of the actual rider, written right there on the side of the bottle. The conclusions of anyone looking at this as a spectator were the worst imaginable. That doping had become a coordinated team effort.
0: Fontecchio. It's pretty hard to deny at that point that this was a systematic... Uh, system of doping, I think maybe, and this is speculation on my part, but one change from the uh, capture of Willy Boat and all of these substances is that to the extent anybody thought that doping was uh, riders kind of individually cheating the system, this was proof that teams created doping systems uh to make sure that all of their riders are taking all of these products.
1: Oh, did I mention? There were vials of perfluorocarbons in the car, too. As in, the stuff they use to coat non-stick pans. It could be used as a blood substitute. It should be enough to say that if pan coating getting injected into your body is part of the formula, then things have gone way, way off the rails, chemistry-wise. The team's director denied any involvement whatsoever. The tour began on July 11th in Dublin, but Team Festina were warned ahead of time. When they returned to France, the police told riders and team officials that they would be questioning them. What they didn't mention was that they would be raiding their quarters at the same time. Nothing happened when the tour returned to France on Bastille Day. But on July 15th, after the holiday, Peter Cosson says that changed.
2: Then the police... Police raid start.
1: Eight gendarmes searched Team Festina's hotel for evidence of doping and other banned drug use. On the same day, the 15th, things got even more serious than a raid. The team's doctor and director were arrested by French authorities. Shortly after his arrest, Festina team doctor Bruno Roussel admitted to widespread doping throughout his team. The team came down from the hotel on the 16th and somehow competed in that day's race. But before the stage on July 18th, the team was booted from the tour. The team initially refused to leave, but on July 23rd, the arrest of most of Team Festina's riders and support team forced them into quitting completely. The gendarmes were done with Festina, but they weren't done. TVM would go down about the same way a car caught by customs at the border loaded with EPO, a series of interrogations, and a raid. But it wasn't just about one team. After TVM was hit, the cops raided five more teams competing in the tour. Teams Lotto, Casino, Once, Team Pulte, La Française de Joux. There were more arrests, more tests, more interrogations, and more searches. Everyone on the tour panicked, says Cossens.
2: The other other teams and, and finding... Other, other kind of hidden, hidden uh, caches of doping products, and there were stories of riders throwing stuff out of windows when the, uh, of hotel windows when the when the police were doing their raids and stuff being flushed down toilets.
1: Riders cooperated with police and saved their protest for the tour itself. Feeling like they were being treated like criminals, the riders demonstrated by staging a tour slowdown for a day, as well as letting grievances fly in the press about being singled out for practices that everyone may have been doing. Chris says that for a while, it was touch and
0: go as to whether the tour would even continue, or whether it should. There was a little bit of a sense that, um, you know, what are we doing here? Why, why is this race continuing? It's, it, it's become so overshadowed by um, the police actions and, uh, you know, there were additional police actions They're raiding hotels.
1: That speculation didn't stop there. Fontecchio says the 1998 scandals
0: posed an existential threat to the race itself. It wasn't entirely clear what the point for the fans' purposes was in continuing. And I I know at the time people speculated, well, if we just stop the tour, will it ever start up again?
1: The tour did finish in 1998. But before it ended, seven total teams either quit or were kicked out of the race before the final stage. There was a winner. Marco Pantani, the basis for the Tour de Pharmacy character Juju Pepe. He ended up wearing the yellow jersey into Paris on the final stage. Pantani did not fail a blood doping test during the race, but a 2013 French Senate Commission report found that blood samples taken from Pantani in 1998 did test positive for EPO. If the tour retroactively disqualified Pantani, that would make second-place finisher Jan Ulrich the winner. But the same report found evidence in the 1998 samples of doping by Ulrich, meaning the tour would have to go to third-place finisher Bobby Ulrich. But his 1998 samples tested positive for EPO in the same 2013 report. You'd have to go all the way down to fifth place to find French writer Jean-Cyril Robin to get a rider who didn't test positive for EPO at one point in the 1998 tour, either during or after in retroactive testing. It was almost better... And certainly less embarrassing to just let someone win and move on, then look for three perfectly clean riders. The Tour, and cycling in general, did make a real effort to clean up after the heights of the doping era. Blood tests to detect EPO and a rigorous testing schedule for riders really did a lot to reduce rampant doping at the Tour. The results have been this obvious. Times overall since then are up. The tour is also adjusted by making the stages shorter than they were in the era of heavy doping, when riders using superhuman endurance were given superhuman stages to ride. Fontecchio says the race is scaled back to more mortal distances.
0: You know, you'll see 135-kilometer major mountain stages with a charismatic mountaintop finish at one of these hills that, you know, average cyclists like me couldn't even... don't even want to try to get up because they're so steep and difficult. But they're not at the end of 250-kilometer stages anymore.
1: The reputation is still there. After all, the Tour de Pharmacy doesn't get made as recently as 2017 if people still don't think of the Tour de France as a den of pharmaceutical iniquities and cutthroat competition by emaciated men in spandex. It's also fair to say that the Tour as an institution earned that. That's what all these stories are about, after all. A nearly impossible physical trial where its contestants are given every reason to try anything to survive, much less win. But at the same time, Chris Vontekio thinks a lot of the tour's reputation is a matter of short-term memory.
0: Where I come down on this is that, like a lot of things in life where we feel like things are getting worse because we didn't know how bad they used to be, they're actually secretly getting better. I would argue, if you look at the number of guys who've been caught doping at the Tour in the last 10 years, it's starting to kind of fall off a cliff.
1: That's all true. But still, as long as the race involves being, well, as long as it involves being the Tour de France with its huge distances, its heritage of outlandish cheating, and the money involved, I think it's there forever. It's just part of its genome right there in the DNA. But I'm a cynic. I ask Fontecchio, who's as optimistic as they come about the race, if he thought the race would ever be perfectly clean.
0: There's always reason to worry. Um, and there, my, even my um, maybe naive view sometimes, uh, I'd still never say that, the, that there will be zero uh, cheating ever at the Tour de France.
1: Jonathan Hirsch is our show's producer Nishat Kurwa is Vox Media's executive producer of audio thanks also to Elena Bergeron and Jen Holmes I'm Spencer Hall and I'll see you soon